21 CL Radio. Happy Monday morning to you. Welcome to the Education Vanguard, and I am your host, Michael Bull, and I am thrilled to have you here. Thanks so much for joining me. Did you know we're on a mission here at the Education Vanguard? That's right. We're on a mission where we go out and we seek out, we search out, and we find educational leaders, and we share their knowledge. Today, the educational leader is John Burns from ISS, which you may know stands for International School Services. Look, I think we all agree creativity is good, right? And I think uh, most of us agree that innovation is good. However, I bet only a few of us might think that the idea of an administrator whose title is Director of Creativity and Innovation is a good idea. I mean, who would want to do that? Well, my talk with John Burns today will likely take that skeptic, that skeptical view in that role and convert that person who has that view into a fan, if not maybe even a fanboy. John is the former director of learning innovation at Sheko International School in southern China, where he led a team of coaches to bring contemporary teaching and learning practices to that school. His new role, Director of Creativity and Innovation for International School Services, ISS, means John is charged with scaling that innovation to other schools in the region and hopefully around the world. John shares his thoughts, some might call it secrets, on contemporary teaching methods, recognizing and encouraging top pedagogical practices, deprivatizing, that's a new word for me, classroom innovations, and how to scale all this within a larger organization. Enjoy the conversation. John Burns, thanks so much for joining me on the program today. Oh, no worries. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you here because I think you have the coolest sounding job out there. <laughs> now, I don't know if somebody gave it to you or whether you made it up yourself, but let me say what it is. You're going to become, or maybe, actually, you already are, the Director of Creativity and Change for International School Services, ISS. What does that mean? What kind of job is that, anyway? Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, and, yeah, I think it was... Uh a bit of a combo of me given the title and then and then developing it a bit further. I guess oh, yeah. yeah, for me, creativity and innovation. Creativity is about you know coming up with big ideas and new ideas, and then innovation is you know the practical execution of those. So mm-hmm. you know you can have a great idea, but you really need the steps in place to make sure it's successful as well. So we're looking at how that applies to you know the learning environment in, in schools in terms of pedagogical practice, in terms of building learning communities, and, and maybe their visioning as well. So you started before this, you were working for Sheko International School, right, in uh, China, yep, yep. southern China there, and you were the director of innovation there. So maybe you could talk about what that job was and then how that led to what you're doing now. How, how did it all start there as a director of innovation? Yeah. Um, when we started there, um, the school pretty much had a remit that they wanted to engage in contemporary teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I guess my role was to come in and, and help them in scaling that practice. Um, yeah, it was quite interesting at the time. So we had a, a very willing staff, uh, very capable staff in terms of uh, understanding of discrete pedagogical practice. And so in some regards, it was quite easy because if you've got those great teachers in place, that's like you know half the battle sure, uh, sure. already won. Um, so yeah, really big focus initially on you know setting that shared vision and, and that shared understanding of why you'd want to get engaged in contemporary practice. We spent a fair whack of time on, you know, building that learning environment to make sure that we had the robust infrastructure to pull it off. So, you know, virtual spaces, physical spaces in terms of agile classrooms and the infrastructure as well in terms of technical support and devices. Um, a, a lot of time, and you probably, you may or 
you may not have seen our school hashtag SIS rocks. Yes, I have um, all that, over the place. That, Absolutely. You're very good at yeah, that. Yeah, that, yeah well, that, that actually existed before I arrived. And we just saw that as a real opportunity um, to build community and deprivatize practice in the school. So we chased that pretty hard and, and built protocols around, you know, what are the types of things we want to see people sharing? Mm-hmm. What are safe and effective ways to use this technology in schools? And, and maybe what are some of the things we wouldn't want to see there, particularly given our context uh, in China? Um, and then really, when you've got those things in place, really firing down to what does great teaching and learning look like? You know, what does great feedback look like? What does great questioning look like? You know, what does an authentic transdisciplinary approach to, to learning look like? Um, yeah, so it's been, there's been a lot going on, but we've just got a really tight crew to work with. So it's been really interesting. Well, can I ask you to answer that very question? I mean, you talked about what is contemporary teaching and learning, or contemporary teaching and learning, and, and you're telling me now about what that looks like. What does that look like? Is there sort of a story you could share or a specific uh, instance you've seen that maybe would uh, paint a picture for us for that? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I think you can look at it at a very discrete level based around a singular learning experience or you can look mm-hmm. at an organizational level. Um, yeah, we've had some, some beautiful examples emerge from our school. We had a grade one girl, uh, English and additional language, who was very, very quiet in class. I uh, was engage, engaging in the, the workshop uh, model, writer's workshop model. And as the last piece, they'd, they'd gone through the entire uh, writing process, they'd put together their, their small moments. And um, what the teacher was looking for was, you know, she wanted to know how the child would emphasize, you know, certain words, the, the, the intent they had behind the story to begin with, okay. and gave them the opportunity to, to layer it with their own voice and narrate over the top. And she put together this beautiful story that, you know, we would have never have seen from her before, given a traditional method. She had the opportunity mm-hmm. to go away, to practice by herself, to record it quietly on her own. And, and it just sort of, it went viral, this story. It was, it, it's actually, you know, it's, it's beautiful and it's actually quite hilarious as well. It's called Pigeon Find a Cupcake. So you get those really nice, nice little examples of, you know, inspired by the Mo Willems books. Uh, and then you get things like for us, um, you know, as an organization using Twitter as a, a professional learning tool and using that hashtag to deprivatize practice. That's just allowing us to connect in, in ways that we could never before, whether that was externally with people like yourself or other educators or vertically within the school to collaborate uh, or with our parents or with outside experts. Um, yeah, so it's, 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 um, it's a big beast, I think, contemporary teaching and learning. And um, yeah, as long as you've got that clear intent around your learning or clear intent around pedagogy, it's easy to stay on track. But if you're focused on the technology, sometimes uh, it can get a bit tricky. Can you tell me about, I mean, I haven't heard the term deprivatized practice before. Can you tell me what that entails, what, a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess, It sounds really uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At a base level, you know, if something great is happening in a grade two classroom in our school, it shouldn't be a secret to the classroom next door. It shouldn't be a secret mm-hmm. to the principal. It shouldn't be a secret to the guys in the secondary school. So, you know, we really want the best of our school to shine so that other people can learn from it, you know, so that... If something great is happening in a grade four classroom, the other grade four teachers know, but so does the middle school humanities teacher who can make a connection with that class. Um, so, yeah, that took, that took a lot of effort initially because people are quite reluctant mm-hmm. to share and they feel like they're showing off if they're, if they're saying, hey, I'm doing this. Um, and our coaches um, took a really active role in capturing and sharing practice early on and that helped build the community. So, suddenly it was, it was okay to share. It wasn't sort of big noting or it wasn't showing off. It was the realization that, you know, if I am doing something worthwhile, maybe it is my duty to share it. Maybe, you know, I really should share it and hopefully um, some other students will benefit from it as well. 
So that that's interesting. So I think we can start talking about some of the other things you're into, such as and we we talked before the show about scaling innovation and creativity in those schools. So using the hashtag CISROCKS, for example, is a way of scaling that mm-hmm. out. So, for example, I saw that come across my Twitter feed. I was always like, what's that? What's that? And I continued mm-hmm. to see it, so mm-hmm. I found it continually interesting and got an idea of what it was about. So mm-hmm. let's step back a moment. When you decided, look, we need to scale innovation and creativity, did you guys sit down and brainstorm out what that means, or was it more organic and created itself, and then in the end you realized you were scaling innovation and creativity? Yeah, yeah. I think you have to be quite deliberate in terms of leading that change. Um, So we we talked about, you know, what's the compelling case for change in our schools? And we did all the stuff that, you know, you would normally do. You know, we looked at, you know, a a kid, you know, it's the old Sir Ken Robinson one, you know, a a kid um, retiring, you know, a kid in, sorry, I should say a kid in, elementary school who, who retires, that'll happen about 2075. What's the world mm-hmm. going to look like then? And so, so what sort of skills and dispositions do we want our kids to have? And so we looked at different models that existed. We looked at things like the SC standards uh, for students. We identified that they were quite valuable. And then we said, if you know, if we want these types of, of skill sets, um, what are the types of things we need to do? And so then we looked very deliberately at how we could change our organization to meet those needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Michael Fullen. Um, big fan of Cotter too in terms of how you effectively scale and lead change in an organization. Um, and and I, there was a couple of key things we did really. One was the notion of lighthouse practitioners. You know, in your school, regardless of where you are, there are already people doing fantastic stuff. You know, there are already people that are really switched on, they're engaging in contemporary practice, really figuring out who they are and making sure that they're a reference point for other people in the school. You know, they, people don't want to hear you come in and, and tell them what to do so sure, yeah. more often than not. It's better to go, well, you know, if you're interested in learning portfolios, maybe you should go see what they're doing uh, in pre-K because they're doing some really interesting stuff down there. And you get these reference points everywhere. Um, yeah, so we had a number of deliberate strategies that we engaged with to, to help scale that change. So I'm learning a lot here. So it, you know, I always personally think the idea that you go in and if you want to do change, you do sort of the domino theory where you convince a couple of people to change and then you can see if they can flip mm-hmm. everybody else. But what you're saying is find the people that are already contemporary and then just in a sense, advertising them, and that's part of the deprivatization that you mentioned. Would that be yeah. a good way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Fulton's got a quote it, uh, that goes something along the lines of like, "Good leaders don't go from theory to practice; mm-hmm. uh, they do it the other way around. They identify what already works in their organizations, and then they find out, you know, the research and the ideas that support that." So, yeah, we really looked hard at what we currently had, and re- I guess a needs analysis of sorts. And then took advantage of those skill sets uh, that were amongst our staff and that, that great stuff that was already going on. Um, and yeah, so when you're quite deliberate in that way um, and you provide you know, a technical infrastructure that just works and gets out of the way, because um, that can sometimes be the problem in school, okay. and you support your staff, you give them a lot of support now, our, just hats off to our learning innovation coaches, who are just always there to help, who are, you know, there was never anything that they uh, they couldn't do or couldn't help with. Um, yeah, that really helped in, in pushing things along. So where did you come up with this idea, this sort of methodology for creating change? Was it through personal experience, reading, or did you have a good mentor or all three of those? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, all of those. Yeah, very fortunate to have worked with you know a number of people in, in previous jobs. Uh, they were very capable leaders. Um, fortunate to work in Queensland government. Uh, mm-hmm as part of the Smart Classrooms Project, and that was a large initiative to roll out hundreds of thousands of laptops into schools and, and support those uh, support teachers in their use. And just to see how that model worked on you know, a statewide basis and then to see a lot of great schools in actions, a lot of great individuals in action, 
uh, and then to 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 read as much as I can about it as well. So yeah, it's definitely a blend uh, of those things. All right, so you're trying to create change, you're, innov- you're scaling innovation, and then we need to talk, of course, about change management. You've got your 10% that are doing the contemporary practice. I don't know what the number is, but let's say it's 10%. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah, and yeah. You're, you're projecting those guys out, you know, via a hashtag or whatever. What about the other 80, 90%? How, what works yeah. for you? What works for John Burns and maybe for everybody else to encourage those people to change? Yeah, yeah, and that's a great question. And, um, You've probably seen and a lot of people have heard of that diffusion of innovation model, that bell curve of you know uptake in terms of new ideas. That right, you see well, like we there. look at it for yeah. product adoption, and, and you're saying yeah, we do yeah. in schools as well, huh? Yeah, and I think I think that's been done to death. Like I, yeah, I've seen a lot of people use that model. Um, what I do like about it um, is that there's a the realization you have those people at the tail end who may be a resistant, and largely. Um, in, in my opinion, initially, you probably just don't work with them. You can spend a lot of emotional time and energy and pour that into someone who you'll get very little from. Um, so, yeah, the people that are highly resistant or don't want to engage, um, we don't force them to and, and, mm-hmm. and we don't expect them to come to any PD, to come to any PL based around what we do. So that was probably something that was quite interesting for us is we didn't mandate any of the professional development. It was all voluntary okay. for the type of work we were trying to do. So we only got people that wanted to engage. And that number was initially small, and then we used that lighthouse model to to identify partners and for them to you know sort of share their practice as well. And we grew from there. And really, you know, in that model, you're always chasing that early majority. You know that if you can shift that early majority of I think it's about thirty five percent or forty percent, okay. then you'll drag the rest of the organization with you. So did you know that going in that that's kind of what you wanted to do? I mean, I guess we could say a, a communist approach to change, right? Where you're trying to get everybody on board and sort of doing it for the greater good, right? Rather than because they have to. Yeah. And did you know yeah, that going yeah. in though that that's what you needed to do, or is this again something you learned yeah. as you did it? It's it's something that I've seen seen um, done quite well before. Okay. Um, and just yeah, I just you're just not mandating it. If someone doesn't want to buy in and they don't want to be involved, then that's okay. And some people say, well, what about the students in their class? You know, they're going to miss out then. Um, I'd argue that if you take the other approach and you mandate, you're going to get a lower hit rate and you're going to have less success and you're going to impact less students. Mm-hmm. So we really wanted to, to grow that desire to engage in contemporary practice rather than force it. Uh, and I think that was uh, integral probably to some of the success we had. And we don't have all the answers and we still make mistakes and there's some things I'd do differently. Um, but yeah, largely we've had some, yeah, a really nice culture of sharing and innovation grow at SIS. I would say, I, I agree with you that, that the way you did it works better, but it, in some ways it's counter-instinctual that as a manager, it's like, we're just going to make them do it, darn it, and then everybody shakes their head mm-hmm. around them. Is it hard to get administrators to back away <laughs> from that point of view on things where you're more like, look, I'm going to sell them on it and, rather than force them to do it? Did you get resistance itself from administration? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think certainly, and that's just a natural reaction. Um, and we, our leadership, were really cool, like really um, supportive of the work we were doing. Oh, great. Um, and and I think, you know, that can be your approach, but it doesn't mean uh, you change your beliefs. It doesn't mean you change the way you work or your expectations of staff. You can still have a really clear expectation that everyone uses learning portfolios. It's just where you spend your time and energy and making sure that's successful. And if someone's really not doing a good job of that or, or just not ready to engage, then that's not a really a big deal yet because they will come around, particularly if you've got clarity around why. You know, if you really know why you're using a learning portfolio and why that's really useful to you, then it's, it's a compelling case in itself. It sells itself. 
Uh, it just takes a bit of time sometimes. All right, John, let me ask about you a little bit, if you don't mind. You ready? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So you got yeah, a, no you have a blog, and then like right at the top of the blog, it says hack.edu, and you're like this skateboarding guy who falls off a lot, <laughs> at least according to the videos. And yeah, so if, if you're coming to my school, should I be afraid, thinking, this guy's just a disruptor, he's addicted to it, he's always going to make things change, he doesn't know what's going on. Is that who you are, or who are you? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think um, I like the idea of hack, hacking in terms of its reference to the sort of old school mm -hmm. culture from MIT when, you know, people are exploring computers and, and coming up with better ways of working. So I think in, in that sense, I see hacking as uh, uh, something proactive and something that brings around positive change. Mm -hmm. You can, you're right though, you've got to be careful. You don't want to be in that constant cycle of change though, where you're always disrupting, you're always uh, causing problems. I heard someone bring up a really salient point the other day uh, and they said that, you know, it's good to innovate but sometimes innovation comes from standardization. You look at something like um, iOS and the App Store and how that's flourished around the world. And, and apps are able to flourish because they've got this baseline of iOS to work with. They've got this marketplace to work with. And those things are standardized. So you do want some roots and you do want some things set in stone, but then you want the ability to innovate and adapt around those. Um, because if you're constantly changing, it just wears people down. Sure. And people get sick of it. And then and you want to keep your good people. You don't want them voting with their feet and going to work somewhere else because it's just changing all the time. Now, you mentioned MIT. Is that the Melbourne Institute of Technology? <laughs> uh, Massachusetts, I believe. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no worries. Yeah, yeah, I'm going back to the 60s now. <laughs> I, I, always, I always get that a little confused. No. Uh, okay, yeah. so let's, we need to get down to a final question. Uh, so, you, again, you got this new job, Director of Creativity and Change for International School Services. So, you know, they, I don't know, maybe in the interview at some point they said, look, John, I mean, this is a new position, right? Am I right? It's new the yeah, 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 so, so, John, like three to five years from now, I mean, what are you going to have done here? How can you justify creating this awesome new job position? And what, what did you tell them or what would you say to them if they asked that question? Yeah, and that was, that was pretty much the key question. You know, what's, what are things going to be like three years from now, five mm -hmm. years from now? Um, and, you know, there's two ways to do this. You can do it the traditional way where you go from school to school and you do a lot of PD and a lot of PL and nothing really changes. Maybe a couple of things do. Mm -hmm. Or you look really closely at the organization and you go, what are some ways we can work better together? What are some ways we can break down the silos that exist between our schools and you know, build some intra-organizational support? So how do we get our IT ops guys talking together? How do we get our instructional coaches having the good discussions? How do we get you know, our principals working together around you know, the compelling case for change? And so for mine, it's really about you know, how do we build that capacity within our organization and make those connections horizontally so that we're not these separate silos. I think ISS is a pretty amazing place. To, there's a lot to leverage in our schools and it, there should be some easy wins. There really should be because we've got a lot of um, great stuff happening around the place. All right. Well, I've been speaking with John Burns. He's the new Director of Creativity and Change at International School Services. Thanks so much for your time today, John. Oh, no worries. Thanks, Michael. This interview was brought to you by 21st Century Learning International. Find us on the web at 21clradio.com. <laughs>